Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Berlin's Akud, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. We're kicking off our new season today. Yay! It's a new season! <laughs> in this episode, we have two intrepid ladies of science and medicine, and our first Nobel Prize winner, double winner, in fact. Also, we have Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire. Hello, Katie! Hi, Susan! To start, iconic scientist Marie Curie, like you've never heard about her before. In fact, one of the guests at our live show said, I didn't know it was going to be so spicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, after that, uh, writer David Wagner is going to tell us about a pioneering female doctor. Uh, but first, Katie, tell us who will be presenting Marie. Right. So it's Agata Lisiak, and she's a professor of migration studies at Bard College Berlin. And she writes about all these quite impressive things, including migrant mothering, close to my heart, urban girlhood, oh my God, also close to my heart, and walking in the city. Good grief. We have so much in common. So here she is on Marie Skłodowska-Curie. Okay, thank you for the lovely introduction. I would like another dead lady to do the honor of introducing Marie Curie. Does anyone recognize this person? Yeah? Who though? Jane Austen. Jane Austen, yes. (laughs) So some of you may remember that almost exactly a year ago, Jane Austen landed on a 10 pound note. That banknote was enthusiastically greeted by many and even uh, celebrated as a victory for feminism. I admit I was unimpressed, and and not only because using a woman's face in the service of capitalism doesn't strike me as a particularly feminist gesture, I was unmoved because when I was growing up in Poland, we had this. Maria Skłodowska-Curie on a 20,000 zloty note. (laughs) The banknote was first issued in 1989 in the midst of hyperinflation, hence the zeros, and right before the fall of communism. In the early 1990s, one pound would cost as much as 40,000 zloty, which means you would need 20 Marys for one Jane. The issuing of the banknote was hardly controversial in Poland, where Maria Skłodowska-Curie is and remains a national hero, with schools and streets named after her across the country and entire generations brought to admire her genius, one of the few Polish traditions I like to continue at home in Berlin. (laughs) Maria Skłodowska-Curie is an idol, not just in Poland and France, where she lived most of her life, but also internationally. She is probably the best-known woman scientist in the world. And just to give you a glimpse into her global fame, here's a little selection of post stamps from across the world (laughs) depicting Marie Curie. With its impeccable font, the DDR stamp is an obvious favorite, (laughs) although I have to say I have a very soft spot in my heart for the Congolese stamp. with the Italian Greyhound. (laughs) So, who was this person who continues to inspire such amazing post-stamp art? (laughs) 
Marie Curie was many firsts and many onlys. First in her class, obviously, many times over. The first woman in France to receive a doctorate. The first woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize. The only person ever to win the Nobel Prize in two different scientific categories. The first woman professor at the Sorbonne and the first and only woman in most situations <laughs> in which she participated. Born in Warsaw on the 7th of November, 1867, Maria Skłodowska was the youngest of five children of Władysław Skłodowski and Bronisława Boguska. Here, little Maria is pictured with uh, her siblings uh, in 1872. Her siblings are Zofia, uh, Helena, Jużo, and Bronia. That's her parents. Her father was physics and mathematics teacher and director of a high school for boys. And her mother ran a school for girls from so-called good homes, an institution Mania and her sisters would later attend as well. When Mania was born, Poland didn't exist as an independent state and Warsaw was part of the Russian Empire. Her family members were involved in the many failed rebellions against the occupiers, such as the January Uprising of 1863 pictured here. Polish was strictly prohibited in schools, but many teachers, including Maria's parents, disregarded the ban and continued to teach in Polish. Maria and her siblings grew up in an extremely patriotic atmosphere. When she was nine, Mania lost her older sister, Zosia, to typhus, and then two years later, her mother died of tuberculosis. Mania entered her teen years in a state of depression, a condition that was going to return throughout her whole life. Mania's daughter and later biographer, Eve Curie, had some pretty strong opinions about her mother's looks around that time. She wrote, it must be admitted that she had taken on weight and that her well-fitted uniform outlined a figure which was not exactly thin. Since she was the youngest, she was also, for the moment, the least beautiful. <laughs> but she had an animated and pleasing face and had the light, clear eyes and hair and skin of Polish women. <laughs> In the Russian Empire, women were not admitted to universities, but that didn't stop the Skłodowski girls from pursuing education. Mania and her sister Bronia attended the clandestine floating university, taking classes in anatomy, natural history, and social sciences. A formative experience for Marie, who later wrote, I have a lively memory of that sympathetic atmosphere of social and intellectual comradeship. The means of action were poor and the results obtained could not be very considerable, and yet I persist in believing that the ideas that then guided us are the only ones which can lead to true social progress. We cannot hope to build a better world without improving the individual. Toward this end, each of us must work toward his own highest development, accepting at the same time his share of responsibility in the general life of humanity, our particular duty being to help those to whom we feel we can be most useful. Both Mania and Bronya dreamed of studying at the Sorbonne, but they couldn't afford it. Maria offered to take up a job as a governess to finance Bronya's studies, and Bronya would study medicine and later pay for Maria's studies in turn. Chain migration, in short. <laughs> There's a widespread misconception in the West that Marie Curie grew up as a poor working class girl. Her family certainly wasn't rich, but they were definitely not working class. Both of her parents came from the Polish minor nobility called Szlachta. 
the letters the teenage Maria wrote to her cousin read like a textbook study of class distinction. She described the family of lawyers for whom she worked as a governess as, quote, one of those rich houses where they speak French when there is company, a chimney sweeper's kind of French. <laughs> and concluded, I learned to know the human race a little better by being here. I learned that the characters described in novels really do exist, and that one must not enter into contact with people who have been demoralized by wealth. <laughs> After several years of what Maria experienced as little less than an ordeal, in 1891, an opportunity finally came up for her to join her sister in Paris. This is how a 1943 Hollywood film imagines Maria's beginnings in the French capital. 50 years ago, Paris was a light-hearted city, the goal of many a traveler. But some came not for gaiety, but to work, to study, at one of the world's most famous universities, the Sorbonne. To its lecture rooms and classes came students from all over the world, and among them was a young girl. She was poor, she was beautiful. She had left her homeland and family, and here in Paris, she was alone haunted by dreams, and invincibly eager. Maria was hardly alone in the city. She was living with her sister and brother-in-law, who ran a salon of sorts, with lots of Polish emigres dropping by, people who would later run the liberated Poland. Marie, as she was now called, devoted herself entirely to studying, pursuing two masters in physics and mathematics. In 1894, she was introduced to the French scientist, Pierre Curie. They labored side by side in Pierre's laboratory and soon realized they were a good tandem. And yet, Marie was set on going back to Poland after her graduation. As her academic prospects in Warsaw were nil, Pierre managed to persuade her to stay in Paris to pursue her promising research and to marry him. <laughs> they got married in 1895 and spent their honeymoon biking through France and then happily returned to work. As young scientists, Marie and Pierre had to do various teaching jobs that kept them away from pursuing research. I'm sure that is going to sound relatable to some of you in this room. <laughs> Whatever time they had left, they spent in the lab. Building on the work of Henri Becquerel, they developed a new scientific field which they called radioactivity. In 1898, Marie discovered two new elements, polonium, which she named after her home country, and radium. Now they only had to prove that these elements actually existed. <laughs> the university gave them an old shed to conduct their work. And Hollywood outdid itself once again in the cinematic depiction of the realness and foundation of the scientific struggle. This was to be the laboratory of Marie and Pierre Curie. The place was even worse than they had expected. There was no equipment. They were at the mercy of the worst extremes of the weather. How could they do anything worthwhile under such conditions? If they had known at the start how long they were to work here and what difficulties awaited them, would they have dared to begin? Well, yes, they probably would. They were that kind of people. Marie later wrote, we had no money, no laboratory, and no help in the conduct of this important and difficult task. 
It was like creating something out of nothing. This period was, for my husband and myself, the heroic period of our common existence. And yet, it was in this miserable old shed that the best and happiest years of our life were spent. <laughs> Entirely consecrated to work, I sometimes passed the whole day stirring a mass in ebullition with an iron rod nearly as big as myself. In the evening, I was broken with fatigue. After working tirelessly for four years, Marie and Pierre managed to exact one-tenth of a gram of radium chloride and thus prove the existence of radioactivity. They were enchanted at the sight of radium. Marie noted that the glowing tubes looked like faint fairy lights. They didn't use any protective clothing and for as long as they lived, kept downplaying the damaging effects radium had on their bodies. In 1903, Marie defended her thesis, researches on radioactive substances, and later that year, as one does, she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. <laughs> Actually, only a quarter of the prize. Half of the prize went to Becquerel, and the other half was split evenly between the Curies. After the Nobel, Marie and Pierre's life changed dramatically. Marie wrote to her brother, we are inundated with letters and with visits from photographers and journalists. One would like to dig into the ground somewhere to find a little peace. As Yves Curie wrote later, Marie did not know how to be famous. Once, at dinner at the Elysee Palace, a lady came up to Marie and asked, would you like me to present you to the king of Greece? Marie declined saying, I don't see the utility of it. <laughs> Radium instantly became popular. It was hailed as the new cure-all, and not just for cancer. It was also advertised as an indispensable ingredient in toothpaste, shampoo, lipstick, and many other products. The Toradia line, created by an imposter, Dr. Curie, was particularly popular. The American dancer, Loie Fuller, begged Marie and Pierre to give her some radium for one of her extravagant costumes. They refused. <laughs> Marie and Pierre were not making any money of the radium craze. They insisted radium belonged to the world and that they had no right to capitalize on it. In her book on Marie Curie, Eva Hemmings-Burton offers a compelling explanation of this noble gesture. She reminds us that Marie, a married woman, would have no rights to radium anyway because, according to the French law, she was not a person. She was just a wife and, as such, like children and those deemed insane, judged incapable. If you couldn't hold any property, including the intellectual kind, wouldn't you give it away to the world? <laughs> In the midst of all this hard work and success, Pierre and Marie managed to have two children, Irene, born in 1897, and Eve, born in 1904. When Irene was one, Marie wrote to her beloved sister, Bronia, who had since returned to Poland. Our life is always the same. We work a lot but sleep well, so our health does not suffer. The evenings are taken up by caring for the child. In the morning, I dress her and give her her food, then I can generally go out at about nine. During the whole of this year, we have not been either to the theater or a concert, and we have not paid one visit. I miss my family enormously, above all you, my dears, and father. I often think of my isolation with grief. 
I cannot complain of anything else, for our health is not bad, the child is growing well, and I have the best husband what could dream of. I could never have imagined finding one like him. He is a true gift of heaven, and the more we live together, the more we love each other. In 1906, Pierre died tragically. I'm sorry. <laughs> In a traffic accident, his head smashed under the wheels of a heavy carriage. Marie channeled her debilitating grief into a journal in which she addressed Pierre directly. When she was offered Pierre's professorship at the Sorbonne, Marie wrote in her journal, I have been named to your chair. There have been some imbeciles to congratulate me on it. Marie was now a single mother. As one would imagine, she considered education paramount. She wasn't impressed with the French schools, so she thought she could do a better job herself. She got a bunch of her professor friends and um, they homeschooled their children together. Marie became particularly close with one of these friends, Pierre's former disciple, Paul Langevin. Paul was married, had four children. When his wife, Jean, found out about the affair, she threatened to kill Marie. Marie wouldn't budge and demanded Paul leave Jean. Jean managed to get hold of Paul and Marie's letters and threatened to publish them. All of this drama was happening at a pretty busy time for Marie. Marie's colleagues encouraged her to apply to the French Academy of Science. The press took great interest in Marie's application, anticipating she would be the first woman elected to the Academy. Marie's competitor, Edouard Branly, was backed by the Catholic Church, deemed supremely French, and won. <laughs> a few months after the rejection from the French Academy, Marie was awarded her second Nobel. <laughs> <laughs> this time in chemistry, the news reached her at the prestigious Solvay conference in Belgium, which she attended alongside Paul Langevin, Max Planck, Albert Einstein, and other esteemed scientists of the day. If you can spot Marie, yeah, yeah? the only woman in the room. <laughs> the Nobel Prize was not the only news that broke out at that time. Jean ended up publishing Paul and Marie's letters. The public was particularly enraged at Marie's alleged demand that Paul no longer have sex with his wife. How dare this foreigner stop French bebés from being conceived? One journalist said this whole affair was proof that France was, quote, in the grip of the bunch of dirty foreigners who plunder it, soil it, dishonor it. People threw rocks at her windows, called her adulteress, foreigner, traitor, and predictably and inaccurately, a Jew. Some of Marie's friends, including Paul, decided to defend her honor by engaging in duels <laughs> with tabloid journalists. <laughs> Here's one of them. Aren't few second-long performances of masculinity adorable? <laughs> As you can see, no one died. Also, Einstein offered his support, though thankfully not in duel. In a letter to Marie, he urged her to hold this riffraff in contempt and simply stop reading that drivel. Leave it to the vipers it was fabricated for, he wrote. Behind Marie's back, Einstein had a different explanation. Marie simply wasn't attractive enough to become dangerous for anyone. You get a pretty good sense of Einstein's dickishness reading about Marie Curie. Terrified by the scandal, the members of the Swedish Academy tried to stop Marie from accepting the Nobel Prize. 
And here is how a recent Marie Curie biopic imagines it went down. Puisque je ne peux pas compter sur votre compréhension, vu l'ampleur du scandale, je me vois contraint de vous interdire tout voyage à Stockholm. Marie did go to Stockholm to pick up the award, and she took her daughter Irene with her. In 1935, Irene would return to Sweden to receive her own Nobel Prize. Soon after the scandal, Marie managed to rehabilitate herself in the eyes of the French public. She became a good migrant by serving France during World War I. To secure the national reserve of radium from the approaching German army, Marie transported it by train to Bordeaux. She also used her servings to buy war bonds and even offered to melt her Nobel Prize medals. Her most famous contribution, however, was this vehicle called Le Petit Curie. During the war, Marie and Irene supervised the creation of mobile X-ray units that drove and drove them to battlefields. By bringing technology to where it was most needed, they saved thousands of lives and innumerable limbs. After the war, Marie was highly revered in France, but her international fame was boosted to brand new proportions by one enthusiastic American. Mary Mattingly Maloney, also known by her nickname Missy, a journalist, editor, and socialite. When Missy found out Marie was struggling to get funding for more radium, she started a fundraiser, first appealing to rich New Yorker women, and then when that didn't bring the expected effect, to all American women to chime in whatever they could, even if only one dollar each, and it worked. In her campaign, which included a profile in the illustrated magazine Delineator, See, maybe some of you will see the line at the bottom, the greatest woman in the world, Marie Curie. Uh, Missy presented Marie as an impoverished scientist sacrificing her duties as a mother in the service of humanity. <laughs> Marie objected to such a portrayal, but she also really wanted that radium. <laughs> so she mostly played along with Missy's skimming. And so Marie agreed to come on a tour to the U.S. with her daughters, pictured here with Missy. Everywhere they went in the U.S., uh, Marie was greeted like a superstar. President Harding handed over the much-awaited gram of radium to her in a White House ceremony. After the intense program that went on for several weeks, Marie was more than happy to return to Paris. Years of exposure to radium caught up with her, and Marie died in 1934 at the age of 66. Even the New York Times published her obituary, although, as some of you may have heard, honoring that ladies was not exactly their thing. <laughs> Madame Curie is dead, the obituary read, martyr to science. She was buried next to Pierre and his parents in a small cemetery. But in 1995, Marie's and Pierre's ashes were moved to the Pantheon. Marie was the first woman ever to be buried there for her accomplishments. After all, the place was not made for women. The inscription on the portico here proclaims to great men from a grateful country. Marie now rests in the holiest of French places, her tomb adorned with Polish flags. Two countries claim her as their model citizen. She is also a comfortable EU symbol. Deemed a good European migrant after all, Marie Curie posthumously lent her name to a framework of major mobility grants, allowing good migrants like herself to conduct research and foster international collaborations in Europe and beyond. 
there is no way for us to know how Marie Curie would feel about this. But I like to imagine that she would apply her critical mind to it and question Europe's hypocritical migration regime. <laughs> there is so much more to be said about her, but I have to stop now. Uh, I really recommend these books that I used for the presentation, and thank you for your attention. Oh, the books, Obsessive Genius, <laughs> Marie Curie and Her Daughters, Madame Curie Making Marie Curie, and Radioactive, which is a graphic novel. It's beautiful. Thank you. Agata Lisiak and Marie Swadowska Curie. Now, in our live show in Berlin, there is usually two presentations in English, which often make it to the podcast, and one presentation of Deutsch, which doesn't. <laughs> we hate having you miss out on these ladies, so we share them with you from time to time via interviews with their presenters. So recently I sat down and had a chat with prize-winning author David Wagner, who has written numerous books, is a lovely person, as well as a Dead Lady Show presenter. You can read some of his work in English, translated by a certain Katie Derbyshire. <laughs> you can indeed. So I translated one of his books, which he called Berlin Triptych, and his probably most famous book, Leben, which means life, has been translated into 16 languages, but sadly, English is not one of them so far. Um, you can read an excerpt from it, which I translated in issue 11 of the Berlin literary journal Sand. Um, and David's most recent book is Romania, published by the lovely people from Verbrecher Verlag. How would you kind of characterize uh, David's writing? David writes meticulously I think that he sits down and he writes and then he scores out every other word so it's very careful very thoughtful Leben is uh, an account of a man who had a liver transplant and ends up obsessed with the person he imagines having donated their liver to him um, David also had a liver transplant but it is fiction and it's just beautifully, beautifully written. Thank you. So, so David and I spoke about Anna Fischer-Duckermann, who lived from 1856 to 1917. Now, Anna was one of the few women to get a medical degree at the end of the 19th century. This was a time when women weren't even admitted to university. She practiced as a doctor, which was also pretty much unheard of. She was highly popular, a best-selling author, and also quite controversial. She supported alternative medicine, a vegetarian diet, a healthy sex life, and contraception, while fighting against corsets and the mistreatment of women by doctors. She was Austrian, actually. So she was born in Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and then she she married and moved to Frankfurt, and she was writing, uh, and she was always interested in medicine and, and Naturheilkunde, yeah, and natural healing, and... Uh, she was over 30. She moved with three little kids to Zurich because Zurich in Switzerland was at that time the only place women could enroll in university. And uh, her husband, uh, he stayed in Frankfurt. So she was a, a single mom <laughs> raising three kids and was studying as the only and first woman. Uh, so this is something amazing. But uh, somehow, against all odds, she did it, and then she was rewarded. She was a very super successful uh, doctor in, in Dresden, and after some years only, she bought a huge 
the villa, a sort of mansion, a Jugendstil palace, and she had her, her, praxis, her, practice. her practice there. Well, that was the sensation. There was a gynecologist, and the gynecologist was a woman, yeah? And that was the first time that was, like, crazy. And so she had um, more patients than she ever could uh, take care of. She was really notable in a number of ways. <laughs> um, I mean, she had these feminist tendencies, ac actions, in fact. Yeah, and she had this right from the beginning. So she, she married... Uh, a journalist, this uh, Mr. Fisher, and um, she insisted on keeping her name. So that's what she called Fisher Dückelmann. Dückelmann is her birth name. And, and this was something very, very unusual. Yeah, she was very much ahead of her time in, in a lot of ways, which are fun to see now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so in her books, in, in, the, in the most successful book, in the, the Frau als Hausärztin, the, the Doctor in the House, which, which sold over five million copies in the years after the publication. She talks about uh, contraception and she talks about sexuality, like a big taboos, yeah. And uh, so um, in some places her book is even banned, yeah, because um, people don't want uh, women, other people to read about it. And, and you have this um, Lebensreform elements in the in the book as well yeah that um uh, so there, there there are even illustrations of 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 naked women and you have you see breasts you see illustrations of a good breast and a and not so normal female body types or male body types and she wanted to be a painter at first and some of the illustrations in the first edition uh, illustration she did herself so, um, yeah. I have a little theory as well that part of the huge success of the book maybe was because there are these, in a time where you have no internet and no pornography, yeah, this is the thing where you look at to see a naked woman, yeah, and, uh, and they, they are very pretty illustrations of, of young uh, females sunbathing in the Alps, yeah, and this is, um, yeah, there's an aesthetic quality <laughs> with all this, yeah. Yeah, there might be some exciting, <laughs> exciting images in the book for uh, men or women of yeah. that time or even now. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you said that you looked at these books when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> it's a little bit like the, the Sears catalog or the underwear catalog. Yeah, yeah. And so even, even better, much better, because there were no underwear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to mm. the theme of, of underwear, in fact, I mean, at that time, mm. you mentioned um, these restrictions. I mean, women had these these severe res body restricting mm. garments they had to wear these corsets and she kind of spoke out against this from quite a young age no yeah yeah this was actually her first publication um uh, against corsets yeah um, she spoke against this for a medical reason yeah because it was um, somehow damaging the ribs and um and uh, so she said this phrase uh, yeah and uh, it hinders a woman to keep pace with a man, and she wanted to keep pace with men. Yeah, she she didn't want to be suppressed. Yeah, and uh, actually she wanted to be ahead of them, and uh, and she did that. The book was um, 
published into or translated into nine languages at least okay. from Polish to Portuguese. Ah. And the first English language edition was published in the U.S. in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, ah. in 1908. And <laughs> it was called the, the Wife as the Family Physician. <laughs> <laughs> you have a personal connection to her as well. Yeah, well, I know about her and I knew about her from very early on because uh, actually she is my great, great, great aunt. Yeah, and um, actually her book, The Frau als Hausärztin, the, the Doctor in the House, it was always around and there were re-editions uh, in the late 1970s, I would say. So my mother had one in our house and sometimes she looked things up and uh, oh what what could i do or what what would we do with that so so this book was really kind of like a reference book that just people would use every day to look up an illness or a treatment or something like this yeah actually yes yeah especially the later editions who had been surely modified do you think people today know who anna fisher dukunan is no, she's not very well known. Uh, in Austria, a little, a little more, but not really. This is kind of sad uh, because she really was, in a way, uh, the first German doctor. Yeah, and um, she could be an icon for um, female self-empowerment. Yeah, and um, because she did it against all odds, and um, um, and that's that's a great achievement. Yeah. David Wagner on Anna fischer Dukemann. You can see some truly astonishing images from Die Frau als Hausärzten and find out more info about uh, David in our show notes at deadladyshow.com where you can also see pictures of Anna and Marie Curie. The website is also home to our Hall of Dames, a list of all the ladies we've featured in the past. We have a couple of live shows coming up to tell you about. If you're in New Zealand, lucky you. Uh, do come out to the Wellington Lit Crawl on November 11th when there'll be a special Dead Ladies show in a venue called San Fran. Sadly, we can't be there, but we're looking forward to hearing all about it. But if you're in Berlin, like us, mark your calendars because November the 27th is our next live show all about Frankenstein. We're featuring Mary Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft and Ada Lovelace all at our lovely Akud Studio venue. And those ladies will also be coming to you podcast listeners very soon. Oh, and one more note, that live show is actually going to be all in English as well. It is, it is. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud, along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. We are now on Spotify. Hurrah! Oh, yes! <laughs> as well as on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Google Play Music, and everywhere you like to listen. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. 